The content discussed in the Left Behind series and therefore this podcast includes emotional trauma, human suffering, extreme violence, gore, as well as hurtful caricatures and stereotypes of marginalized groups, and is in no way reflective of the host's personal views or beliefs. But we beeped out the cuss words in case you want to listen in front of your mom. Left Behind is a multimedia franchise that started with a series of 16 best-selling religious novels by Tim LaHaye and Jerry B.J. by Tim LaHaye and Jerry The future has come to pass. Hey everybody, welcome to another episode of I Survived the Rapture. We're that podcast that slogs our way through the Left Behind novel series so you don't have to. I'm your lapsed evangelical Shane Bazell. And I'm your ecumenical fanboy, Gavin Russell. All right. So uh, for those of you listening, I'm going to go ahead and apologize for a couple of things. Uh, One, the audio quality on this episode is going to be a little different. Uh, We are trying something new with our audio setup, experimenting, trying to see how it comes out in the final product. So bear with us while we do our technical test for this episode. Second thing, um... I'm coming into this one as a recovering sick boy, Gavin. You've uh, you've got the the Carpathia assassination plague. Yeah, I got the yeah. I um I caught a little bit of that. Uh, I have recently had a birthday, and uh, <laughs> I uh, may have overdone it a little bit because I've now crossed the threshold of thirty, and I'm not feeling super hot. So I am uh, I'm coming to this with all the mental energy that I can. Trying to bring you guys a solid episode, but uh, I may be a little slower on the uptake. So if Gavin has to remind me of things, that's probably why, because my brain is currently drowning in medication. Yeah, so all of you out there, use your special appointed gifts to uh, make sure that Shane gets better. Yes, lend me your spiritual energy, please. <laughs> okay, so we are on part two of the indwelling. Before we get started, how'd you feel about this middle section? Because I know that middle sections can always be kind of dicey for us on here. Well, we get, like, chapters 7 and 8, they're kind of like, meh, you know, it's kind of like, uh, like not necessarily filler, but not much exciting happens. But then in this section, we get one of the most bonkers scenes that we've gotten so <laughs> far in the book. Yeah, I really, really like the way that this section ends. I'm just going to plant that seed right now. So if you're listening and you're like, well, maybe I'm going to skip this one. Now you can't because yeah. I'm going to tell you about all the cool stuff that happens at the end of this section. We get a, full, a few good moments. Like, let's just jump right in. All right, cool. So let's start off at chapter seven. So it is a buck scene. He is frantically trying to call members of the tribulation force as he and Hyam check into the night visitors. The night visitors. Yeah, so there's a, a pay-by-the-hour kind of motel situation. They wake the guy up. And they're like, we got a room reserved. And it's it's just kind of a back and forth about are they going to be able to get in? And then they do. Yeah. So not a lot happens there. We switch over to Ray. Ray's about to go through a little bit of a character transformation on the outside to sort of match the way he has transformed on the inside. Mm-hmm. Um, he's going full like Walter White now. He meets a guy who is like the Greek version of Zeke who is going to shave his head, do some makeup on him, you know, change his beard, give him a new identity. And he's like, oh man, are these, are these gray hairs? And he's like, yes, but I'm about to add more of them. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. So he gets a full makeover 
And I'm going to see Ray kind of as Brian Cranston now. Yeah. He's gone from Patrick Warburton to Brian Cranston for me. That's a good mental image. For yeah, him. yeah, yeah, totally. Lots of David stuff in this section. And I, that's not really going to slow down for the foreseeable future because David, as one of our only guys on the inside who's there to deliver exposition. Remember last time David started scoping out the strong building. In this one, we get like a full view of it. And the strong building is fucking absurd. It's ridiculous. Um, <laughs> I think I wrote somewhere in my notes, this is kind of like a Mary Sue building. Yeah, it's it has stuff in it that even like today's standards, you'd be like, that's a bit much. Yeah, it's too perfect. Mm -hmm. The strong building was a technical marvel. Holy solar powered, giant reflectors stored enough energy every day to run the tower's power plant for weeks. So even a several day stretch without bright sunlight never negatively impacted the building. After playing cyberpunk a little bit, because like, like fun fact for y'all out there, we, we do other stuff in this podcast. And uh, one of the things is a cyberpunk uh a tabletop game and I play a net runner. David is just net running right now, <laughs> essentially. Oh my God. I did right. Yeah. The hacking stuff yeah. that's been going on. Yeah. This is crazy. So he talks about how he's like going through each of the files and he's taking control of each of the building systems. And he's like, it's like the best video game ever made. Yeah. <laughs> we got, crazy. we got this one section. It took David more than two hours of hacking through a morass of classified layers of information before he was able to turn his code breaking software loose on the gateways that led to the mainframe that controlled the strong building. Shut up. <laughs> this is so dumb. Oh my God. So yeah, the strong building is overly perfect. And if I was writing this, I might write this as like a honeypot, mm -hmm. you know, like it's almost too good to be true. And there's like GC guys waiting for them when they get there. Spoilers, there's not. But we also learn David has maneuvered Abdullah into place mm -hmm. to get the video discs uh, basically the recording of the assassination and to copy them so that he can actually view them and get them to the rest of the force. Yeah, and another thing that David does is he actually changes, like, the radiation levels in Chicago to be even higher so that planes, like, don't even fly over there anymore. Right, he kind of edits the spreadsheets of the radiation levels. Mm -hmm. Yeah, he doesn't actually make it more radioactive. I don't know why my head went there when I first read that part. I was like, did he make it more? What is going? Oh, wait, never mind. <laughs> I've been sick, you guys. <laughs> Back to Ray for a second. He is stopped by the tower crew, and it's another one of those, like, nothing burger tension mm -hmm. moments, you know, where he's like, oh, no, are they going to get him? And he's like, oh, man, look at your ID. You're wearing the same shirt. This looks like it was taken today. And then nothing happens. Like, they don't really stop him. Herpaderpader, all the competent GC members got killed by God. Oh, God, I forgot about all that. Like, yeah. it's been a couple weeks. Listen to episode one in the car. Oh, did you? So yeah, that, that's how I'm like fresh. I really should start doing that. So we go back to David again. So brief interlude with Ray back to David. He's snooping in on the evidence room and we meet Jim Hickman. Now Hickman is VP in charge of the investigation. Mm -hmm. I think he's under is it Walter Moon, the department lead over security, I think in general. Uh, and then Hickman is underneath him. I can't recall, but that sounds right. And he brings David in. To show him like the lectern and the curtain and the bullet fragments. I wrote here, this is just marking time filler. Like yeah. they're showing us stuff that we already knew. We know that the curtain got ripped. We know that the lectern's in pieces. It's not really saying a lot, but we do get a neato takeaway from this. Okay. I think we get our 
first ever racial slur in all of Left Behind in this scene. Yeah, we do. So we're not going to read it. Um, it is a racial slur against um, Arabic folks. I did point this out to Alex while I was reading this because she heard me go, whoa, yikes. It is said by one of the bad guys. Mm -hmm. So this is something that I've seen Jerry do a couple of times. And I think that it's a belief that a lot of conservatives hold. And I will say that because I did have a family member say something very similar when they were talking about all those liberals um, is that they will spout all of this rhetoric about like tolerance and what they'd call political correctness and things like that, but they don't follow it themselves. Yeah. That's the belief. So I think what Jerry is trying to communicate, because this is not the first time that this has happened. I think Leon's been a little racist. I think some other people surrounding Nikolai have said racist or sexist things. Mm -hmm. And they're being like, oh, see these, uh, these peacenik liberal, you know, commies all want everybody to be nice to each other, but they're not really like that behind closed doors. Right. You know, behind closed doors, they drop all the racial slurs, just like us. <laughs> <laughs> At least we're honest about our racial slurs. Right. Like I didn't, And while that's not being explicitly said here, like you get the vibe, yeah. you know? But the most important takeaway from the end here of chapter seven is that now they're saying conspiracy. Mm -hmm. They have not nailed down who the assassin is yet, because again, the video discs have not arrived that's going to play into a later chapter. They are pretty much definitively saying Rayford Steele, not the trigger man. Yeah. Which we knew already. Mm -hmm. And like we've listened to the last episode, we know who did it. The audience does, which kind of robs a lot of this of tension. Mm -hmm. And I don't know if that's how Jerry probably thought of it as he was plotting it out. I think the tension is supposed to be, are they going to get found out? Yeah. And then what are the repercussions going to be? But kind of as we talked about last week, the repercussions are already happening. Like, Hyam's staff is already dead. So regardless of whether they know he did it or not, the tension just doesn't really get a chance to, like, congeal. Yeah. You know, did that work for you? Or? Yeah, it kind of, like, because, like, they, they did the Hyam thing a bit, like, revealed it was Hyam a bit too soon, which makes all of this, like, conspiracy like was it one of the potentates was it hattie durham like did rayford somehow actually do it that's all removed with kind of like they jumping the gun a bit on like feeding that it was high yeah i don't know it just the plotting just doesn't really work for me here and i think a lot of this filler is kind of why like mm -hmm. them repeating certain facts and events and plot points over again I'll probably come back to that when we do the off the record. Yeah. All right. End of chapter eight. So we get a little Leah scene. She's talking to Ray over the phone. It really is more marking time and just getting characters to where they need to be. Mm -hmm. um, she's not exactly happy with what Ray did. And she kind of gives it to him just a little bit. And then she just pulls back and is like, wait, sorry, I'm being mean. <laughs> Nothing really happens there. Yeah. But then we get to hear the autopsy. And this is what really starts to cinch it that Hyam did it. This is how he did it. This is what happened. Um, it's Mac and David. They're listening in on the autopsy, trying to find out as much as they can about what's going on here. Yep. They're listening to Dr. Eikenberry, uh, like do the, uh, the routine like stuff with the body, like getting it ready for embalming and stuff. This is a lot of paragraphs devoted to just people discussing the body, discussing what's happening in a very sort of like flat, uninteresting way. Mm -hmm. I made an observation in this chapter because 
a lot happens, but nothing does Mm -hmm. because I am truly starting to hate the way that Jerry writes dialogue in between people. Yeah, because it's just people saying things. And I know that's really vague, but there is a way that people talk in the real life, which is not this. Mm -hmm. Like they don't just spout facts as they're happening and then have little terse exchanges with one another. There is also a way that people talk in interesting fiction. This is going to be a weird poll, but the Joss Whedon dialogue problem, you know, you don't want to go so far into people trying to sound clever and quippy because nobody talks like that either. There's a middle ground to find somewhere. And like, I'm reading some other books right now that I think balance that out very well. I'm reading Robert Evans's book called After the Revolution. And I think that that's got great dialogue uh, that gets the point across It's interesting. It's fun to listen to. It's engaging conversations that characters are having that I want to hear where the conversation goes. Yeah. You know, and each character has a distinct voice. I don't necessarily think that Jerry succeeds in that with each one of his characters. His villains really do have distinct voices. Yes. His heroic characters all sound the same. Hmm. Like on that, like I think because his villains maybe have more distinction because like one, there's less of them and two because like he is kind of using them as like a mouthpiece for like other ideologies so he's having to get more creative with it i I think you're right yeah i think you're right Uh, i think that villains and maybe it's like a camp thing you know when you're in that evil space you can be a little bit more creative and almost a little bit more cartoonish yeah especially when you're telling a story like this that's supposed to be easily digestible villains give you a fun space to play around in Mm -hmm. and i'm not trying to say that necessarily I could write them better, but you know, heroes are a little harder to write. Yeah. Evil will always prevail because good is dumb. Yes. A <laughs> <laughs> couple things about the autopsy. Uh, we mentioned, I'm surprised the body doesn't stink yet. Did you catch the little Lazarus illusion uh, there like from the Bible? I, I didn't catch that, but now that you say, it, yeah, that's, uh, I yeah, there's it. a verse in the story of Lazarus when Jesus commands that they roll the stone away from the tomb because he's going to raise him from the dead, which we've already seen alluded to once Mm -hmm. with Leon. One of Lazarus's sisters says to Jesus, she says, Lord, it has already been, you know, X number of days. I think it was three days. His body will stink. Yeah. I think that that's a little subtle illusion there, which I kind of do like that when they do those little biblical illusions, which we're going to get plenty of in this section. And like, yeah, I kind of like that they're just inverting the story of Christ. They have to find like very creative ways to do that. So I will give them that. That that is a good, uh, that's a good thing that they do occasionally. It's like they're taking the Jesus story, like it's a tarot card and like reversing it and be like, that's a Nikolai story. Yeah, (laughs) totally. I mean, he is the anti- Christ. Yeah. You know, he's the antimatter Christ. This is the scene where we find out what the murder weapon truly was, because as they're going in to examine the body, the doctor almost cuts herself on a I, almost paper thin sword blade. Is that a sword left in Carpathia's body? It sure is, boys. <laughs> so it's a ninja sword. And we kind of get an idea of what happened, because it's like the sword was pushed up through the spine and like up into like the neck and the top of the head. Oh gosh. Like Nikolai stumbled back basically into Hyam's lap and Hyam just one thrust like up and then he twisted it. Oh yeah. Yeah. It's pretty dope. They also learn that the EMTs are like, yeah, there are zero bullet wounds here. And it turns out pretty much everyone in the GC has already been told, uh, steel is the perpetrator. He is the one who pulled the trigger. He is the one who killed Carpathia, but the conspiracy part is being kept under wraps. And mm-hmm. we'll go back to this a couple of times of them trying to like contain the conspiracy. 
I wrote here, I am one shot at Nikolai like an anime swordsman. Dude, he did. <laughs> I got just the mall ninja aspect of Haim. That's not a direction I saw his character ever taking, but they I'm, get points for unexpected. Yeah. Let's give him that. It, it is that because like, he, again, he is the last person ever was suspected. And uh, I need to formally apologize on air. Uh, I had a viewer right in, sent me a paragraph like, how did you not see this coming, Gavin? This, this guy is researching strokes, and then all of a sudden he just has a stroke, and like he's somehow working in his workshop. Gavin, how did you miss this? So, I'm sorry. Uh, there's a lot of content in these books. Plot points fly over. Left behind's rotting my brain. <laughs> <laughs> I was getting ready to defend you, and then you said it was rotting your brain, and you're not wrong. I'm sitting here with my own brain rot. Um, I am going to defend you, though. Okay. I am going to defend you, because back to our kind of three candidates, you had Ray. Yeah. Who was doing the same thing. Like, he was getting the gun. He was making a plan. He was in the right place at the right time. He's obviously not going to be the one, because they spent too much time on him. Yeah. Right? Like, if you're trying to subvert expectations, he's not going to be the one. I can see why people would think it would be Hyam because of all the reasons listed by that listener. Hattie seemed to be the most likely because she was the one getting the least airtime. Yes. That is why I would have assumed it would have been her. Mm -hmm. She had arguably the most grievance, not the, you could, you could kind of go back and forth. And yeah. Yeah. She wanted blood. She was training for it, but then she sort of went off the grid and then it was the sudden like, oh wait, no, Hattie escaped. Yeah. She was definitely there, and then it didn't happen. Mm -hmm. You can totally be forgiven for that. Okay, gotcha. So, now go sin no more. <laughs> <laughs> so, speaking of Hyam, though, we're going back to Buck. Buck and Hyam are kind of going back and forth about the murder. Hyam has confessed without confessing, just like we talked about in the last book. Um, and he kind of immediately lays into Buck. He's like, you should be happy that I did this. I'm not happy, but you should be. I killed your dude. <laughs> like, mm -hmm. you didn't like this guy. Buck kind of cuts in and is like, Hiam, your staff is dead. And that hits Hiam like, kind of like a Mack truck. Yeah. And he has a really emotional moment. Hiam, another character with a distinctive voice. Mm -hmm. Now, will that voice remain? We'll see. Yeah, we'll see. Okay. <laughs> there is, uh, there's stuff that happens that may or may not kind of alter that voice. Okay. So he wants to die as punishment for his staff's death. He is immediately feeling self-loathing and he's just hating it. Yeah. He's pleading with Buck to kill him and Buck is just like, shut the window, Heim. I'm not going to kill you. Heim just has continued mental breakdown because he's going through a lot. God bless him. Well, um, and he says something interesting that is probably what I would have said. He says, if God would send me to hell for killing such a monster, I would go gladly. Yeah, which that's a cool line. Yeah, it's pretty cool. Like, again, I am still one of my favorite characters. I like that he has that level of conviction. Hyam is a lot of things, and a guy with strong opinions and strong convictions is one of them yeah he's he's probably one of the one of the better written characters in the series like at the beginning of his arc i'll still say like in the first few books it was a bit rough but as as the books are going on he's getting like uh, probably some of the better airtime yeah and they're sort of pulling back on making him kind of an innocent almost childlike character yeah they're kind of trying to make up for lost time here mm -hmm. 
So, and I just wrote here, being back with Haim is refreshing. So I, I feel that way. Um, he does explain how he did the deed, which we kind of discussed earlier. They're trying to get out of there because Buck's like, we got to go. Um, so Buck pays a drunk to buy them clothes. Yeah, he's like, buy me some clothes and shoes with this 20. And when you bring them back, keep the change and get another 50. And the guy's like, how do you know I won't run off with your 20? My wrist buck said, you're lost. You want 20 or 50? Gimme, the man said, reaching. <laughs> it's just so utilitarian, you know? It's just like, we have to get Buck and Hyam from point A to point B. There's magic drunks outside that will go run errands for you, I guess. And like, it's the, very the like Christmas Carol, like, go buy me the fattest goose. <laughs> <laughs> the drunks come back too. Yeah, they do. <laughs> and they're like quipping and like, it, it's it's really silly. That's mm-hmm. It's back to like every character that Jerry writes has similar aphorisms, you know? Yeah. Aphorism, that's the right word. Is that? <laughs> um, but anyway, so we end chapter eight on finding out that the plan to copy the discs has kind of failed. Mm-hmm. Um, mission failed. We'll get them next time. Abdullah tried to get some alone time with the discs so that he could copy them while he was on the plane and the courier would not let them out of his sight. Yes. So no dice on the trip force getting copies of these video discs. But that doesn't really matter because as we know from the epilogue of the last book and the prologue of this book, and then we're going to see the scene later, hat trick three times, David's going to get a chance to see this. Yeah. And uh, then we get another time skip. So maybe the smallest one we've ever gotten. Yeah, we get a seven hour time skip. So let me ask you this. Why do you think that they are trying to stay within such a small time frame? Uh, because they I think they want to keep this book with within the gala week just so that they can like to make the end of this book when Carpathia comes back. So yeah, almost might be like they're trying to stay within a certain number of days. Yeah. Number of days might be relevant. You know what? I'm talking crazy. Let's (laughs) move on. All right. So yeah, seven hours later, um, David is taking some time to listen in on Fortunato and he's got Hickman and Moon in their office. They're watching the videos. We get the same slur again. Yep. Still a word we're not going to read. It ain't great. And uh, they they make some notes about New Babylon, how it's like, it's just beautiful right now. But since like part of the population got removed, a lot of like trash is starting to pile up. Like a lot of the logistical side of New Babylon can't get done. Because a lot of people are dead and like they don't have enough workers. I'm going to be honest, uh, before this past year, I probably wouldn't have seen this as as striking an image as I see it now. (laughs) Right. Like, you know, there's just not people around to do the specific jobs. So there's just stuff not getting done and it's kind of empty. Mm -hmm. And it, it felt a little real. And then another thing that stuck out to me, and I think we both highlighted this, is that they started talking about Steele's motivations. Yeah. Like, why would he do this? Mm-hmm. Um, because he's a Christian, and Christians don't kill people. That's not the way it works. And he says, maybe Steele thinks it's a holy war, and then everything goes. And I was like, mm-hmm. Yep. Yeah. That's uh, kind of like we've been talking about that for several books now, that this is that kind of rhetoric that gets people radicalized it, to do things. It's almost like that rhetoric is a major theme of this 12 book plus book series yeah that they kind of have their cake and eat it too that they are pushing this rhetoric forward without actually condoning it Mm -hmm. but they are so condoning it in between the lines and we'll have to talk about that when we get to the off the record i think it's we're getting to time hey man we're not saying deus volt but you should probably deus volt oh boy um, and then we get confirmation that the someone who looked like Hattie 
did bump into Ray in the crowd, mm-hmm. but Hattie's not there. She's in the Western U.S. That okay? So when that popped up, I was starting to think like, okay, so did they get like a? She's like, we have plastic surgery, right? They can do faces. Did have they made someone look like Hattie to start like? with them maybe like there's like a hattie like like a hattie mewtwo that's just oh, like no. walking around <laughs> oh, and she's, she comes back and she's got like a like an iron man suit on <laughs> oh my god that would be crazy and awesome but i don't think that ever gets oh, paid damn off. so we don't have like a hattie fight a uh, Hattie versus Hattie fight would be awesome, but I don't think we have that. The Hattie clone. I don't think we get quite to the cloning level of QAnon in here. Mm-hmm. Like these kind of conspiracy theories hadn't had time to to sort of gestate to the level that they're at now. Okay. But that would have been dope. A part of me is wondering like what, what that Hattie in New Babylon is now. So we'll see. I have no idea. And I'm really worried that I think it is a nothing burger. <sighs> Okay, and that again, that's why I didn't like I didn't suspect Hyam because they fed me so many nothing burgers. I'm like, this is probably like, I don't know, what were they doing here? Yeah, it's nothing. We got some race stuff where he's like, man, I'm I'm screwed. I'm definitely the scapegoat here, mm-hmm. <laughs> which like, yeah, we as the reader already know that it's like we're trying to fill a page count. There's here. a there's a line here that, again, if they wouldn't have revealed the Hyam thing away, like Rayford saying my money is on one of the three insurgent kings, probably lit Walla, that would have added to like the political intrigue. Like, oh, man, is it one of like the potentates that did it, too? So, yeah, I, I remember liking this book a lot more when I read it the second time really like like the first time for this podcast because obviously back in the day i read it and it was fine i liked it more the second time i read it this time this third read through to really do my outline i was like wait a minute yeah like and it was kind of the same way for me because like when i first read the book i guess because like like again i listened to an audiobook so i guess my brain filtered out some of like the dumb stuff yeah yeah a part i listened of me to it while i'm like, doing the dishes yeah a part of me was like man like maybe we should change our rating system because this is almost better than assassins and now i'm like nah this is uh this is objectively worse it is it is it has some great moments but it is worse mm-hmm. but you know we got a couple more episodes till we get definitive yeah so we're back to buck and Hyam. david does get in touch with buck finally and he says oh by the way Hyam's being declared dead which we kind of know like all right if he's being declared dead that means that pretty soon he will be mm-hmm. actually dead um because the gc is going to try to find him and that the official line within the GC is that it is Ray, but they're still looking into some of the potentates because, again, they have not seen the video yet. We get more baby killing plot. Oh, my God. So Chloe wants to, like, venture out and, like, go to the strong building and, like, scope it out. And she leaves Kenny with Zion. She's like, hey, by the way, promise me you'll kill my baby. Yeah, if GC <laughs> comes in here, you got to kill my baby. And it's like, I will defend your baby to the death. No, you you kill the baby and then defend the place to the death uh, it's just so bad and like it's like no we got it like you want to kill your baby and it's no more comfortable than it was the first time that we heard it and like again i get it i get that they're trying to raise the stakes here mm-hmm. but it is just so uncomfortable to read and i haven't quite put my finger on why like obviously the baby killing sucks yeah but uh, did, do you know why we feel so uncomfortable with this i don't I guess it's just because it's so left field, like, because Chloe's very, like, nurturing and stuff. She's almost like the Marion figure, 
of the group almost. Well, not exactly, but she's just a very like caring, motherly and figure. And she's also like level-headed. Yeah, like, level-headed. She's always been a very practical, like her dad, practical, yeah. level-headed, like, you know, character endowed with a lot of agency. And she's trying to, in a way, exercise that agency here, but they're writing her to be borderline hysterical. Yeah. Like maybe it is just the stress of being in the rapture and it's her mindset of if the GC comes here and tries to kill us, I'd rather the baby be in heaven rather than um, uh, to the GC. And that might be where some of that discomfort comes from, where she's just like, I will send my baby to heaven so it doesn't fall in the hands of global community. Yeah, I, I And that sounds it. a little bit, uh, when you take a step back. Because the morality of it is so dicey. Like, as the reader, we're supposed to condemn that. Yeah. Right? Like, we're supposed to look at that and go, okay, it's a baby killing yeah <laughs> like that is nope you kill the baby straight to hell do not pass go do not collect 200 dollars. you're <laughs> you, done your mark just like blinks out from your forehead and falls off yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> it turns like a temporary tattoo it just rubs off the next time you touch it mm-hmm. but then like at the same time you're following that up with a suicide yeah which is also like big no-no yeah and I know as the reader, we're supposed to condemn that, but then, like, you write it in Chloe, who is a practical and sympathetic character, it's not landing for us, I think, the way that they probably meant it to. Mm -hmm. I think that they meant it to be like, oh, look at the stress and the toll that it's taken on this character. We already got a whole book of that with her dad. Yeah. So this almost feels like an also ran for another steal starting to crack under the pressure. And I'm not saying that you don't tell this story, but like, I, I don't know. I just feel like it could have been done better. Yeah. And the fact that like, this is some, like, I'm not sure if they harp back on this in part three, but the fact that they're returning to it again, like there's a lot of moments that are really cool that they only hit on once, but you're going to hit on like more baby plot moralizing in like that's just so unnecessary that they could have used the scream time for literally anything else that they want off mentioned. Yeah, and I think you have noticed, and any of you guys who are reading along on the actual physical books will notice. Oh God, this is you. a short one. Yeah, this is actually a shorter book, so this really does feel like without these long stretches of time to play in, they're struggling to reach a page count. Mm-hmm. So we've talked a lot about in this one, kind of in a frustrated way, how things are getting repeated over and over. I think that might be why. Yeah. Cut back to the autopsy. They are starting to examine the body and the doctor says something like, well, now that we see the injury, that puts the lie to the whole uh, last words thing, huh? Because the injury is literally too great for him to have spoken. Yeah. Unless it was something supernatural, which I mean, that's silly. And uh, his last words are a little bit different than the ones we initially heard. Because he does say, I thought I did everything you asked, Mm -hmm. which we've heard a couple of times repeated. What are his additional last words? Because apparently there's a follow-up because his mic was cut after I thought I did everything you asked. And then he says, The veil, was it rent in twain from the top to bottom? Father, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Does that sound familiar to anybody? (laughs) That's... That's like from Shakespeare, right? Nah, dude. No, what's that from? That's from uh, Jesus. Oh, okay. <laughs> Actually, you know what? Let's uh, let's pull it up. And Jesus said, "Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do." And they cast lots um, to divide the garments. And the people stood by watching, but the rulers scoffed by him and saying, "He saved others; let him save himself, if he is the the Christ of God, the chosen one." 
what I thought the Renton Twain was was like uh, was that I thought that was from Shakespeare. But yeah, I know that like father and then not that they do is from old Jesus. Right. So the veil being ripped in Twain. That's when Jesus finally died. I think all this is in the Book of Luke. The veil in the temple that separated the holy place from the holy of holies, which was the most holy place inside of the temple mm-hmm. had a veil like a curtain in it that was very tall gotcha. and the whole thing about it being ripped from top to bottom was that nobody would have been able to like get up there and rip it so it's clearly god that tore that down and that goes into sort of the christian theology is that in jesus death he tore the veil into between man and god ah gotcha right also i think i've been lifting because i didn't make the noise when i lifted <laughs> the bible so i'm strong now yeah i also have that god strength to, yeah. to rip the veil i think it's it's just all the times of lifting up that giant bible you're starting to you're starting to get swole take off the weights and it's just two of the esvs right. <laughs> But like we said, so he's he's copying the words of Jesus, and this is not the last time we are going to hear words from the crucifixion story mm-hmm. said by characters. So like you kind of said earlier, they're taking these moments from the Bible, and they're just sort of putting them in the bad guys' mouths to be like, Ugh, it feels weird that the bad guys are saying Jesus stuff now. Personally, it doesn't really squeak me out, um, but I think that that's what it's designed to do. Yeah. You know? And I just wrote that it's way too on the nose. Yeah, I'd, I'd agree. Like, especially like the for Father, forgive them, they, for they know what they do. They could have been a little bit more creative, but you know. I'm going to give it to them, though. Okay. Like, it's fine. Like, yeah. I'm, I'm good with it. Like, it's trying to accomplish something specific for its audience. Yeah. And it's trying to show, like, how spiritually corrupt and rotten that these guys are. Yeah. And it's hitting on that, the devil will imitate Christ yeah. thing. Yeah, and I think, like, uh, last episode, I guess, the Carpathia youth, like, doing the... the- Carpathia <laughs> youth. Yeah. Yeah, doing their, like, whole... Like bowing before him and singing Saying songs. their Lord's Prayer. Yeah. Yeah. Cut from there to Ray picking up Leah and they are going to go grab Chloe in Chicago mm-hmm. uh, because they know she has left the house and they're like, oh, that come on. And so they go to pick her up. Leon calls an upper level personnel meeting to kind of fast track the funeral services. And almost immediately, Guy Blod's like, um, can I be excused? <laughs> and they're like, yeah, you have a idol to work on. <laughs> go do that. And then... Dr. Eikenberry, who is performing the autopsy, she comes in and rather than give a true report, states for the record that Rayford Steele's bullet killed Nikolai. Yep. Complete media manipulation there. That's the official on the record story that they send out to the entirety of global community. Can you read what she says? Yes. There's recorded evidence that His Excellency's last words were an expression of forgiveness to the perpetrator of this heinous crime. Forgiveness has long been ascribed to the divine, and as a medical professional, I must tell you why I concur with this assessment. Besides, the sentiment of those last words, I can tell you that there is no human explanation for the potentate's ability to speak at all, given the physical damage. Truly, this was a righteous man. Truly, this was the son of God. Oh, there it is. So that's another one from the crucifixion. I believe the Roman soldier who had been present at the crucifixion that witnessed the whole thing uh, looked up at Jesus on the cross and said, truly, this was the son of God. Mm -hmm. I don't know if it's translated as the son of God or the gods um, or specifically like Jupiter Mm -hmm. or anything like that. The, The Greek gets a little muddy, at least in all the translations I've seen. But 
it's a, someone from outside saying that, okay, this was the Christ. Yeah. And we're going to see a little bit more of Nikolai the Divine later as the funeral procession starts and how people are reacting to it. So then we uh, we get we cut back to Ray and Leah. They are hot wiring T's car. Yeah, because they get to the Powaki airport and they're like, okay, well, T's gone because we find out later that T is on a mission to go pick up Buck and Hyam and take them to Greece and then on to America because they have to escape Israel. Mm-hmm. Uh, but T's car is there and Ray kind of does like a... He would want me to have it. So they outwire T's car. Eventually, when they get into the strong building, they're just going to steal all the cars in the valet Mm -hmm. to be their new sets of wheels. So they just got to get there first. And they're driving along, and um, one line kind of stuck out. The guy who sees them hotwire the car just decides to kind of look the other way. Mm -hmm. He doesn't trust you, Leia said, as they strode to the Land Rover. Why should he? I wouldn't either. See, even forgiven sin has its consequences. Do we have to spiritualize everything? Leia said. But Rayford could tell she was bemused. Do we have to spiritualize everything? I just wrote, yes. These kinds of Christians are... Are Christianity weebs? Yes, they have to make everything about Jesus. Do we have to spiritualize everything in this several thousand page epic about spiritualizing everything? Correct. <laughs> when which everything is spiritual, everything has prophetic meaning, and everything is from God. Yes, we have to spiritualize everything. <laughs> Which, again, you put that in Leah's mouth because she is one of the more skeptical and grounded characters who hasn't gone through, like, the true Rayford Steele transformation. Mm-hmm. Then you kind of have Rayford to just sort of shrug, you know? But they don't go directly downtown. They stop at Zeke's first to get Leah a new identity and one for Ray as well. And I just wrote Jerry likes describing like grotesque things about people like he's done it a few times, but he stops to describe Zeke's like jiggling belly. Yeah. Like he's Jabba the Hutt. <laughs> so yeah, he, Zeke Jr. stood rolls of fat jiggling under his black vest and shirt. Come on, man. Like, leave him alone. He's got a dad bod. Like, not everybody can be Buck Williams' action star. <laughs> and then I just wrote that when they bleach Leah's hair, they talk about it being freshly bleached. And I'm like, all right, you better not run afoul of any GC right now because that is going to smell like a mother. Right. As the son of a cosmetologist, spent a lot of time around uh, hair that's been bleached. Yeah, (laughs) it smells. And you know, at least for a good minute, that that hair has been bleached. And then the last part of this chapter is that they call Chloe and she's like, no, I want to go check out the building. And Leah basically tells Ray to pull rank on Chloe. Mm -hmm. And it's like, just tell her what to do. You're the guy in charge. It's just really funny. So I guess old Ray is kind of back. Like he's not sliding into the background and letting other people make decisions. We're into chapter 10 and Hyam is still kind of reeling from finding out. And um, he's telling Buck, just leave me, just leave me. And Buck's like, no. And he's like, well, you can't make me go. What are you going to do? Turn me in. And Buck's like, I'm not doing that either. Lots of back and forth with Hyam sort of self-flagellating over what he's done and Buck trying to reassure him and trying to keep his head above water. He does make a point. He says, look, Cameron, you've gotten me farther than I would have ever expected. I believe in God. Mm -hmm. He got me that far. So we're starting to get where Haim is going from being on the undecided. Like he's starting to move off that list in this book. Correct. Like he has not fully accepted Christ yet, but he is moved the needle significantly now he's doing this thing that people who are hurting often do he is pushing buck away he doesn't want anyone near him so he's trying to almost like insult him and get him to leave him alone 
well, Buck's not happening. He's yeah. sticking by his friend, which is nice. I still like their dynamic. Like that means something to me in yeah. this in this series, and I want to see that succeed. But the thing that I did not like about this section, and I want to ask you about, is he talks about God hardening Hiam's heart. You don't want to reject God too many times because eventually he will harden your heart. I've I haven't heard that phrase much because I, I've heard the thing like God can soften the hardest hearts, mm-hmm. uh, but I've never heard the it referred to like God will do the hardening instead of the softening. Okay, so I can tell you an Old Testament reference where you have heard it, and I will tell you the New Testament reference they are pulling from. Okay, so you have heard it if you've read the Old Testament story in Exodus. Okay, because what is discussed there is that. Despite the plagues and Moses petitioning Pharaoh, let my people go, God hardened Pharaoh's heart. So basically God came in and said, still tell Moses no Mm -hmm. and made him do it, which is a really weird concept considering that so much Christian rhetoric is, oh, no, 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 you have to come to God of your own free will. Mm -hmm. Okay, well, if God makes me say no or urges me to do something, what's the point? Because what they're pulling from here is Romans chapter 11. Can you pull up Romans 11 for me? (laughs) There it is. What then? Israel failed to obtain what it was seeking. The elect obtained it, but the rest were hardened, as it is written. God gave them a spirit of stupor, eyes that would not see, and ears that would not hear, down to this very day. What Tim, and I'm going to put this at Tim's feet, is kind of taking from this, is that in the last days, People who have rejected God too many times are going to essentially be hardened against his grace. Mm -hmm. So eventually God's going to get tired of you and basically say, like, you know what? You're not coming to me. I already know, which gets into some weird predestination stuff. And it gets to some contradictions in terms of, like, is there always time? It's a very, very weird bit of doctrine Mm -hmm. that personally I can't suss out. Yeah, it doesn't make sense to me at all and it's a weird inclusion like it almost feels like it was included just because of that verse and maybe tim thinks that that is prophecy yeah but i was also taught that that if you know you reject god too many times eventually he is going to make it so that you can never come to him harden your heart to where that'll never happen huh it's weird right considering that you're supposed to have a god that's unconditionally loving and you know, and like I said, like he can soften the hardest of hearts, but there's even a lo- there's like an ad he can make your heart adamantine that even he can't soften. Right, I know. Like that's you know, can God make a rock so big he can't lift it? Like it's it's standard Christian contradictions and stuff that we run into a lot. But this bothers me on another level because it's like, okay, which is it? Mm-hmm. Like I looked up some doctrine about this, and I got a couple of comparative examples. The common thread that I kept seeing on all the commentaries was that God does this as a display of his power really didn't resonate very well with me. I was like, okay, well, why though? Yeah, that's a weird one. And I, I, if anybody was taught this or had a different perspective on it, I'm really scratching my head, guys. This is one of the first ones that I remember getting this lesson when I was younger not really paying attention and never truly getting this one explained. Cause you know, as a kid asking a lot of questions as to why the Bible says what it says, this one just blew right past me. So it's a weird inclusion and I don't 
like it. Yeah, and like this was kind of like when I was young and I like I may have talked about this before, but I'll hit this again. Like when I discovered what Calvinism was. Yeah. And I was just like like people at my church and stuff were like, No, 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 we don't believe in like Calvinism here. I'm like, but like if he knows the fate of like everyone the moment he, like, before even he creates them, that nullifies a lot of stuff. Yeah, like what's the point? Yeah. Yeah, it's it's weird. But again, this is sort of like the, you know, don't pay attention to the man behind the curtain. We're going to move on from that. And like I said, maybe we'll talk about it in the off the record. Or if anybody has some insight on this, feel free to message us and be like, this is what I was taught because we'd love to hear it. Mm -hmm. The conversation back and forth between Haim and Buck is interrupted by a phone call from Hattie. And this pretty much seals that Hattie is where the GC said that she was. She's in Colorado. She was not present for the assassination, or at least that's what it seems like to me. Um, but she swears up and down. She didn't compromise the safe house. She didn't lead anyone there. She's been trying to cover her tracks. Yeah, Bo and Ernie are dead, so they can't spill. Right, and she's like, look, I love everybody there. I would never have compromised them. I, please believe me, we'll get back in touch, mm -hmm. you know? And then we cut back to David, and David gets to see Leon do a little flex. It's kind of neat in a weird, gross way. Um, so David's eavesdropping on Leon because they bring the cameraman in who filmed the murder. And he's like, yeah, 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 I saw it. It wasn't steel. And then like father, like son. There he is. He uh, he pulls out a trick where he like waves his hand like, I'm going to tell you exactly what you see. Oh, yeah. See, now he's learned the student has become the teacher, like he said. And he's learned the Carpathia double whammy mind trick. And he does it. And then he starts pushing it further. Like he starts being like, Neil, kiss my ring. You don't have a ring, sir. <laughs> kiss the spot on my finger where the ring should be. <laughs> that's a line that's yeah. in the book <laughs> and and it's kind of funny i guess it is it supposed to be funny I, you know like it's kind of hard to tell like it's like leon is like the comical villain at times so like because he's so like inept with some of his stuff that it's absurdly funny so maybe i guess man like i i tr i choose to read this as comical yeah um it's a little weird <laughs> but david just can't listen anymore so he hits the intercom and stops listening and he calls annie basically to say like i'm gonna be pulled into the office please pray with me before i have to go in and face this demon man <laughs> ray and leah meet chloe downtown buck and Hyam making their way away from the motel Hyam finally truly breaks down he says i'm lost i have nothing to live for but can you read Hyam's little yeah. monologue there it you don't think I know I'm lost? If there's one thing I do know, one thing I am certain of, is that I'm lost. Why do you think I would sacrifice myself to murder the greatest enemy my country has ever had? I did not expect to survive. I was ready to go. Why? Because I am lost. Nothing to live for. Nothing. My farewell act was to be some benefit to Israel. Now the deed is done and here I am. And yes, I am lost. It's kind of like Inigo Montoya there, you know? Yeah. I've been in the revenge business so long, I don't know what to do with the rest of my life. <laughs> <laughs> he expected, like, all right, I'm going to kill Carpathia, and then I'm probably going to die. I will say that in terms of Hyam's character, Jerry sticks to the, um, he has numbered our steps. Mm -hmm. God has plans for Hyam, and he is not done with him yet. Ah, gotcha. Yeah, I have nothing else to live for. All right, well, just wait. <laughs> so we're in a chapter 11. Yep. Um, we get some bad news. 
So Ming calls Leah, and we find out that very much like Haim, uh, Buck's family is dead. Yeah, Buck's entire family got burnt up in a fire. After being dismembered and just brutally massacred. Yeah. So the GC's not really playing around anymore. They don't need an excuse. Mm-hmm. Like, they'll just kill your family. They're trying to flush the tribulation force out. While she is on the phone, she's ducked down in the Range Rover, and some GC guards roll up. Yep. Uh, and what she does is she makes it seem like she was just sleeping and trying to, like, get away from the sun. So that's why it looks like she's hiding. Basically, it's just cop stuff. Like, where are you going tonight, ma'am? You got some place to be? What are you doing out here? You know. Well, why in the floorboard? Knocking on the door of the car with a nightstick, you know. Mm-hmm. It's like, who, who among us hasn't been there sleeping in their car? Oh, just me? Okay. <laughs> I, I missed this part. Guy named Russell. <laughs> I'm in this book now. Oh, yeah. Guy named Russell. There you are. Read left behind long enough, you'll get stuck in it. Oh, there haven't been any Shanes yet, so I'm (laughs) I'm holding out hope that there's not. We're back to Annie and David. They have their little prayer service, and they talk about the Antichrist because they keep wondering, like, is Leon the Antichrist? Was Nikolai supposed to rise from the dead? We're confused. We're not sure. And I just wrote, it is ridiculous that these goobers don't assume that the Antichrist is going to rise from the dead in three days. Yeah, like... Come on, like, you've you've seen, like, he takes everything God does and inverts it, so, like, you, you should know the time frame. You've read the book. It would have been a little more metal if it's six. Yeah. But, sorry, guys, spoilers, it's three. Yeah. We switch immediately from that to Buck is guiding T to the runway to pick them up. Mm-hmm. Um, he gets a call from Ray, literally while he's trying to wave. And I say runway, it's not a runway. It's just a clear stretch of road that's not, like, destroyed by the earthquake. A lot of makeshift runways in this plane book of ours. A lot of makeshift runways. And Buck gets the call from Ray, and he notices immediately that Ray is, like, back to his old self. Like, he's being kind. He's being encouraging. He's saying, I love you. Old Ray's back, and Buck notices it. So the whole arc of Buck seeing Ray change from assassins has come full circle back around. Mm -hmm. Um, So David goes up to Leon's office, and he watches the video. So now here we are. We have made it to the scene that was the epilogue of the last book. We saw it again in the prologue of this book. This is... We have our assassin now, don't we? Mm -hmm. This is that scene. And so David very clearly sees Hyam stab the sword up through Nikolai's head and twist it. And then the follow-up line to, we have our assassin now, don't we? Rayford Steele murdered our beloved potentate. Mm -hmm. To which David replies, uh, no, he didn't. (laughs) Yeah, like, he's like, Rayford, hadn't they watched the same video? And then either through Jedi mind trick or... Maybe they did some video manipulation. I don't think it's entirely sure. And I don't think it ever gets confirmed. But David looks back at the screen and he sees Nikolai die from the bullet. Yeah. I don't know if this really is Jedi mind trick. Like if God's protection just doesn't have enough juice right now. Mm -hmm. I don't know. Maybe they they did. They've got like deep fake technology. Maybe they did. I like I, I don't think that ever gets followed up. On. Yeah, like it's it's one of those dangling plot threads that just like it would be cool if we got that answer. But I don't think we do. It is weird. It's weird and unsettling to see, you know, one of the sealed ones seemingly get affected. Yeah. You know, Leah is sitting with Ray and Chloe inside of a makeshift bar, kind of making plans to get back to the safe house. OK, how are we going to move people? What are we going to do? Back to T as he's talking to Buck, trying to put down on that makeshift runway and the plane doesn't have enough room. 
Mm-hmm. So it starts coming in too fast. You can kind of see it. He's trying to make the landing, but he just can't stick it. The plane like bounces, spins, blows a tire. Mm-hmm. Uh oh, we just had a little complication with getting out of here. In a way, yeah, in we'll, a way, we'll get there. David and Annie are back together. David's out of the office. He's sweating bullets, and they get to watch as the funeral procession begins. This procession seems very much like like when Stalin died. And I think that's almost kind of what they're going for, because he's got the glass beer. It's vacuum sealed. You know, it's surrounded with flowers and people are going through the procession up front. They're all crying. And many of them are offering religious exaltations. Yeah, they're doing like the cross and stuff. They're, yeah, many uh, of them are kneeling down and praying. It's basically saying like all these diverse different faiths are exalting him as if he is God. Yeah. Starting to, anyway, and it's starting to catch on. And then we get like a weird section where the statue that Guy Blod is making, in the hollow legs, they're putting a furnace in there. And they're putting the sword fragment that was stuck in Nikolai in the statue itself so that it melts within the statue. So no one can ever know. Ah, okay, okay yeah. so that's why. That's why it's, it's also kind of like poetic. Yeah. You know, that like the weapon that killed him will be in the fire that will consume it, that is inside of him forever, and you know, that kind of stuff. I'm so wondering if the, the, the furnace section gets used for another purpose. Like if, if I'm right there with you, I don't think so. Okay. Cause it's like a major part of like this icon statue, which I feel is going to either become a major like centerpiece of the global community, but it might not. It's very Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego yeah. because you have a graven image of a leader, like a King figure and it's coupled with a furnace. Yeah. So like you would think, I don't think we go there because once we get to the mark, we're going to start looking at, different methods of that thing you're probably thinking of Mm -hmm. as far as dispatching enemies of the state goes. Gotcha. But spoilers, we'll get there. Mm -hmm. We got another book. So chapter 12, we got two more. Yep. Okay. So Ray and company are walking out of the bar and they immediately get stopped. Like, Hey, uh, you can Ritz. Oh, that's a name we haven't heard in a while. Yeah. And the reason why they're asking, are you Ken Ritz is because they found Ritz's suburban. Yep. Which Chloe was driving. So, well, no getting home in that because he's like, nope, never heard of him. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so they got to abandon the suburban. So yep. they're now another car down. So things are starting to get bad for the trip force. The net is starting to close in around them. They ventured out too far. So when T's plane lands, because we're back to T, Buck, and Hyam, uh, the GC are pretty much on their way. So they got to go. Yeah. I and mean, they're like, hey, can you take off in this? And T's like, I just might be able to. And he's somehow able to take off, but they're down one tire and it wrenches that landing gear loose. Ah. So now they're down an entire landing gear. Mm-hmm. So it's going to be very difficult to land, if not impossible, without crashing. Yeah, it's, a, it's a double whammy now. Yeah. Uh, I ain't having a great time on this plane. And he decides he's going to start praying. Yep. Now it goes from kind of like just a crying out like, oh God, like literally crying out to God into he starts thinking. He's like, you know what? I may just do this. Mm-hmm. Because they T is very honest with them and he's like, look guys, our chances of surviving are probably about 50-50. Yeah, and like Buck's just like, you know what? We might meet God tonight, Hyam. And Hyam's like, look, you don't need to tell me again. I, there's never a more perfect opportunity than now. You've told me everything you're going to tell me. Just give me a second, okay? Mm-hmm. And then they discuss motives as far as salvation goes. And this gets into something that I discussed with parents, with pastors, with other people. 
the concept of fire insurance. Yeah. You ever heard that phrase? Get used? Yeah. Yeah. We've talked about that. Yeah. We talked about fire insurance, Faith. I was always told that's fine. Yeah. Growing up. Like if you get your fire insurance, it's fine. It doesn't matter as long as you truly believe it. Whatever your motives were, God's just happy to have you. Right. Mm-hmm. And I think that this is what the book is also saying as well, because there's a line in here somewhere. Your motives initially don't matter because once you get the faith and you truly believe it, all of the rest of the benefits will come that you're not even aware of. of yeah. Just becoming a better person, of becoming more fulfilled, all these things. Nothing but good things happen to you once you, you know, yeah. take that leap of faith. So God doesn't really care how you got Yeah, there. you think you're just getting fire insurance, but actually it comes with health care, dental, and paid vacations. So. If, if only. <laughs> if only. We'll have to talk about that sometime with the, uh, the sort of evangelical counter to social programs and what they believe on that. That'll, that'll be okay. for a special episode, I think, one day. Okay. Back to Zion. Boy, oh boy, here we go. So Zion is, you know, he's conked out on the couch, you know, sort of half awake, watching Kenny play around, watching the funeral on TV. He falls asleep while sort of praying. He's doing his Zion thing and praying for everybody, you know, just sort of in the back being support and interceding for his friends. Mm -hmm. And he feels that tingle again that we got from part one. And my man has a full out-of-body experience. Dude astral projects into heaven. Like straight goes up through the ceiling, past the ceiling, past the power lines, up through the clouds, into orbit, and he just keeps going. Yeah, and I want to mention right now, the the time is 1257. Right. Oh, that's very important. Have you played the original Kingdom Hearts? Yes. That is most hours logged in a PS2 <laughs> game as a child. <laughs> Probably same, dude. <laughs> to get that ultimate weapon. Maybe Final Fantasy X I played more. No, Metal Gear Solid 3 I think I played the most. I played more 2 than 1, but yes, I've played a lot of them. Okay, do you know that there's an image that I'm talking about and you see, uh, what's his name flying through like a black void toward like a light. And he's sort of doing like the Peter Pan fly where he's like back and forth. Yeah. And, yeah. Like, the lights getting brighter and brighter. That's what I'm seeing here. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. It's yeah. a very distinct image that is burned into like my middle school psyche because I was playing that probably while reading these. So yeah, just out of myself. It's a self-report playing kingdom hearts. Yeah. So he's experiencing like a heightened awareness. Like it almost sounds like an out of body experience that you would think of on like, you know, drugs or something like that. Mm -hmm. But we were always taught when I was growing up that like the only time you're allowed to have these experiences under the purview of the Holy Spirit. And that's it. Anything else other than that is say 10. Yep. (laughs) Big Satan. And so he's enveloped in this otherworldly light that's brighter than the sun. And they call it the Shekinah glory. I've never heard that phrase. Oh, you never heard that phrase? Oh, man. Like old time Baptists and charismatics and evangelicals love to talk about the Shekinah glory. So dictionary definition, we're getting um, the glory of divine presence conventionally represented as a light or interpreted symbolically. Um, It's also the aspect of the divine feminine in the Kabbalah, but typically reserved for Christian and Jewish theology. Okay. Actually comes from a Hebrew word meaning dwelling or rest, sometimes translated as bosom meaning like you're being held or hugged by god like held close so it's similar to the beatific vision that catholics talk about maybe? i think i think similar okay. um the most specific example that i have been told is supposed to be the shekinah glory is what you look upon in god that will kill you 
Like when you see God in full, that it would kill you. Okay, so it's like that scene in like uh, Raiders in of the Lost Jones. Ark. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah where it's yeah. like where they open the veil and oh, Nazis melt. Exactly. Okay. Um, that is why there is a story, and I think it's Moses um, who wanted to be able to see God, and God was like, "Can't do that, boss." Uh, but you can see my back. You can see me walk away. Hate to see you go, God. Love to watch you walk away. <laughs> So he puts Moses in the cleft of a rock. God lets him watch him pass. So he sees him from like the side and the back, but he can't like look upon his countenance. You know what I mean? You can't handle my strongest potions. Yes. Yeah. Uh, Exodus thirty three twenty two. And when my glory passes by, I will put you in the cleft of the rock until I have passed. Yes. So okay. he was able to be in the presence, but not really view it. Yeah. Zion's getting full 4K. HD of God. Right. And I think that they are kind of trying to say he's not in his physical body. Mm-hmm. Like, I'm sorry, I'm like splitting hairs here, but this is something that is actually doctrinally important is that he is not in his physical body when this is happening. Yes. So okay. that's apparently fine. So we're going to close out today on chapter 13. I really want to spend some time on the science stuff that happens in this chapter. So I want to, we're going to get kind of indulgent here on this last chapter, because like we said earlier, this is a shorter book. Yep. Buck calls Chloe and is like, hey, hon, I'm sorry. We're in danger. I just want you to pray for us. Uh, things ain't good. <laughs> um, and Hyam is on his knees in the back of the plane, praying and dedicating his life to God. And he just says, Cameron, I'm afraid, mm-hmm. which, you know, is pretty vulnerable moment for him and i'm kind of into it and then t says they're going to be in greece in 20 minutes he's going to attempt the landing without a landing gear he's going to do a belly landing which is not great (laughs) not ideal circumstances nope not ideal at all but almost immediately we're back into the zion jam we're going to read so much from this because there is a lot to take in here so almost the last like 10-15 minutes here i exclusively focus on this Mm -hmm. zion's consciousness surrounded by the light and he sees a gigantic translucent face can you read that part it was as if he dangled between the nose and cheekbone of some heavenly mount rushmore image but this was neither carved from stone nor made of flesh and bone huge and bright and strong it was also at once translucent and Zion was tempted to will himself to pass through it. But as it should have been frightening, and it was not, he wanted to see the whole. If a head, then a body? He pulled back to see the face ringed with hair, massive as prairie grass. It framed a face kindly and yet not soft, loving, and yet confident and firm. And so he speaks to this giant face and he asks him are you jesus christ a rumble a chuckle a terrestrial laugh no came a gentle voice that surrounded him and coming from a mouth that size should have blown him into oblivion so we find out that this is not jesus this is he refers to himself as one of his princes come now yonder gabriel So he's not, he's not Jesus. This is an angel. Weirdest depiction of an angel I've ever seen. And that's, that includes the multi-eyed, be not afraid. Yeah, it would have been cool if that showed up, but. That would be pretty dope um, and biblically accurate. So it is Michael. Yeah, it's not Gabriel. It's Gabriel's brother. Because he initially says like, okay, if you're not Jesus, then you're Gabriel. And Michael's like, no. Gabriel and I are as brother's child. It's kind I of command sad. the heavenly host. Because he's like, oh, no, I'm, I'm the other guy. 
<laughs> it's like being like, oh man, it's he's he's the George Harrison, mm-hmm. you know, of, of the Angel Beatles. I don't know who Ringo is, but oh man, you look a little bit like Tony Hawk. <laughs> It's actually kind of close to what it is. <laughs> wonder what he's doing right now. <laughs> so here we are now. Jerry is putting words into the mouths of supernatural biblical characters now. Yep. We have named characters from the Bible. It's not like Eli and Moisha where they're like, it's like a little bit like, oh, okay, man, they're, they're kind of that. They're kind of not. No, this is straight up Michael the Archangel, like from biblical lore, and Jerry is writing dialogue for him. <laughs> Folks, put a pin in this because it ain't going to be the last time. And by the time we get to the end, it's going to get worse. <laughs> So Zion immediately lays into questioning Michael. He's asking him everything that he wants to know. And Michael kind of dodges the questions. And one of the funniest reasons he gives, he's like, um, Gabe's the talker, not me. So maybe, maybe don't ask me things. (laughs) He basically says Antichrist will be revealed in good time because Zion's asking all the questions like, where are we? What am I witnessing? Who's the Antichrist? Was I right? And Michael's like, shut up. Stand silent, observe, and give truth to the war in heaven. So we get a scene Mm -hmm. in which Lucifer is standing before the throne of heaven. And you can tell it's Lucifer because he is shining brighter than anyone else there. Yeah. You can't see God because remember, we don't we don't see God the father. You hear his voice from on high above everyone else. And a lot of this is pretty consistent with how I was taught, like that the war in heaven and that the presence of God and everything in the throne of heaven was gonna look you know you know you don't get close to God everybody's kind of down in sort of a courtly arrangement beneath it what he says during this is this line right here he refers to Lucifer as the evil one can you say yeah. you read that line right there the evil one that old serpent has had access to the throne of the most high since the beginning of time until now the appointed time. Okay. So Michael establishes a little earlier that time basically has no meaning here. Yep. Eternity past and future are the present here. Right. And so we're not clear if this is happening concurrently with events or if Zion is seeing things that have already happened or if it just doesn't matter. Yeah. You know, time passes differently here in the TBI. Yeah. <laughs> You know, this is the end of time, mm-hmm. essentially. So that's actually not a terrible analogy. Yeah. And that's where I'm going to end talking about Loki, because I'm not going to spoil anything for anybody. Who watch Loki. It. It's so good. Yeah, you guys really should watch it. Satan has had access to the throne. Do you remember way back when we talked about the concept of the Satan? Yes. The accuser. Yes. That's in the book of Job, correct? Yes. And this is where... A lot of Christians will sort of square the circle of their sort of fan fiction version of Satan and the character that is presented in the Old Testament as the Satan. Yeah. He is the accuser, the prosecuting attorney of heaven, right? This is Jerry and Tim kind of trying to square that circle and saying that, oh, Satan has always been the prosecuting attorney. He has always been the one who stands before God and judges these people and brings a case against humanity, but he's not doing it as part of God's plan or God's order. He's doing it because he wants to be in charge Mm -hmm. because he thinks he has a better plan for how to use humanity. And he talks about a little bit of that plan a little later on. Can you start there at the bottom of yep, 244? Just keep going. I'll get all the way through the nose, yep. man. Right. This is this is a good bit. I'm gonna let you go for a bit right. here. 
Your so-called children are beneath you, ruler of heaven, came the persuasive, mellifluous tones of the eternal solicitor. Abandon them to me, who can fashion them for profit. And even after being called by your name, their natures reek with temporal desires. Allow me to surround myself with these enemies of your cause, and I will marshal them into a force unlike any army you have ever assembled. From the throne came a voice of such power and authority that volume was irrelevant. Thou shalt not touch my beloved, but with them I shall ascend uh, to a throne higher than yours. No, they are weak and ineffective in your service. No, I can salvage these hopeless wrecks. Thou shalt not. I beseech you, ruler of heaven and earth. No, grant me these or I will. No, I will. No. I will destroy them and defeat you. I shall bear the name above all other names. I shall sit high above the heavens, and there shall be no god like me. In me there shall be no change, neither shadow of turning. I guess that's Satan's, like, grand plan? Yeah, he, he wants to, like, get above God and, like, rule, like, everything. I guess. It's really, it's weird. Because you expect this, you know, in, like, supernatural fiction and stuff like you're reading like Constantine or you're you know anything that has the Judeo-Christian I guess we can call it like a pantheon Mm -hmm. in it you sort of expect words to be put in the mouth of like Satan or God or Jesus or Michael Gabriel you know all that it's weird to see it here from people that actually believe it's real yeah and so it's kind of fuzzy for me and it remains fuzzy You know, because when you give all power and authority forever and ever and eternity to a being, it doesn't really make a lot of sense that even the beings under him would have the ability to question him or to fight against him. So this is all very strange. It kind of was a thing like, well, like one of my biggest questions when I was studying, like, like the the Garden of Eden tripped me up. I'm like, why did you let like the snake in the garden with essentially like children? You're kind of letting this all like tempting being in your garden i'm like why 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 god let him in there like what what's 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 going on with that yeah it it's kind of back to everything that we constantly say about the way that these events play out is that it doesn't make a lot of sense and it almost feels here like jerry is trying to give satan like a motivation yeah like because the standard depiction is yes he wanted to ascend above god but they're kind of trying to give a little fire underneath him as to why is that like he feels like god's not doing a good enough job and honestly i guess we don't either yeah so i guess that puts us aligned with satan uh well people already thought that so yeah but as he continues to make his case, he starts to morph into like a an evil dragon man and then into just a dragon. Yeah. <laughs> and then as he's getting more angry at God telling him no. Um, and then Zion looks down and he sees a woman clothed in the sun with 12 stars on her head. And the dragon tries to pounce on the woman as she is delivering a child like she's in labor this is all from the book of revelation he's not able to devour the child because the child is snatched up into heaven and then michael's army and the dragon's army they start to face off and then we we cut yeah from there right zion wakes up and the time is, is 12 59 so, so two minutes two minutes have passed so zion's been gone for god knows how long but not really it's yeah two minutes To unpack this a little, because we're going to come back to this in part three, Zion will later ask, is this woman Mary? Is she Israel? What is she? And Michael essentially goes, 
Yes. So that's going to be a big plot point for the books coming up. Yes. Remember when I said the book is going to take a shift? That is planting the seeds for that. But we're going to come back to that in either part three or as we get into the next book. So put a pin in that. Okay. As we're closing out the chapter, Buck and T witness Hyam doing his prayer for real. Can you read his prayer for me? Oh, God. I've never before prayed believing that I was actually talking to you. Now I know that you're there and that you want me. And I don't know what to say. He began to weep. Yeah. Forgive me for coming to you only because I'm afraid for my life. Only you know the truth about me, whether I'm sincere. You know better than I. I know I am a sinner, and I need your forgiveness for all my sins, even for murder, regardless that the victim was your archenemy. Thank you for taking the punishment for my sins. Forgive me and receive me into your kingdom. I want to give you all of myself for, um, for the rest of my days. Show me what to do. Amen. And we're going to see in a minute whether or not God accepted that. Yep. Finally, with David, he's watching Guy's team assembling the giant furnace statue. And it's really kind of like dystopian and bleak, you know, like the statue of any dictator that you see in these authoritarian regimes and stuff. That's definitely what they're trying to evoke. Yes. And Leon kind of comes up behind him and does sort of the Xerxes to Leonidas like, you know, I um, got a place for you in my new regime. And he's like, oh, you're a new regime. I, okay. <laughs> um, but he did quote Shakespeare yeah. at one point, and he's still doing his uh, his kind of bag boss thing. Mm-hmm. I mean, if you do, tell me. I have people watching the three dissonant kings closely, and I think Litwala has a lean and hungry look. You know where that's from, Hasid? Yeah, it's like, yeah, you know that? Yeah, it's Shakespeare. Yeah, yeah just Shakespeare, Julius Caesar. Yeah, I'm pretty... Uh, yeah, pretty well read. No, no, my running around Willie Shakes. The first time I read this section when he's uh, when he's giving the opportunity to pr- promote David, I'm like, oh, are we gonna get King David in here? That would be kind of dope. Yeah, like I was thinking that. I don't think that happens. It doesn't. But I was hoping. It doesn't. I'm gonna go ahead and and not set you up for disappointment. King David would have been super cool. It does not happen. Dang. Okay. Yep. And oh, and we also find out that they're not going to have a funeral for Peter Matthews. Yeah. They're probably just going to go dump him in a Yeah, he's somewhere. like, hey, Rome's kind of been, like, pressuring us because they want to have this funeral service for Pontifex Massimus. And Leo's like, oh, yeah, they'll, like, forget about him next week. So yeah. we, should, we probably shouldn't even have a funeral. Uh, Pontifex dude. who, am I right? <laughs> uh, we have fun here. And so we end the chapter and this episode with Buck confirming that Hyam now has the mark he can see hyams hyam can see bucks score another one for the good guys put hyam rosen's wag on the board we got him yep and he and he, he he sees the hall of foil he's so happy he got the mythic rare <laughs> and just in time too because they begin their descent and t essentially says fast your seatbelts boys this one's gonna be rough mm-hmm and that's where we're going to leave off with chapter 13 of The Indwelling this week here on I Survived the Rapture. Gav, how you doing? I'm doing pretty good. Like this was this was a fun section to get through and like it was, it was relatively short ish. We covered a lot of content, but I'm ready to close this one out and then finally get to 
the mark. Yeah, yeah, you've been wanting that one for a while. You know, it's almost worth getting through some of the repetitive stuff that we had to deal with earlier to get specifically to the throne of heaven. Yeah, like the astral projection scene. Which we're going to keep coming back to that and talking about it because it is a linchpin for stuff that you guys have not gotten to yet in your reading. I'm promising you. It's it's going to be very important. They they put it in here for a reason. This a lot of this book is built as a vehicle around what happens there. With that very, very vague foreshadowing, (laughs) uh, we are going to close it out this week on I Survived the Rapture. Thank you guys, as always, for joining us. We've had a lot of folks coming out and saying, hey, we've listened to the show. We really like it. The audience is growing. The community is growing. And we want to thank you guys since we're kind of a little past the halfway point here. Um, Make sure to follow us. Make sure to subscribe and write us a review if you can. Those actually really help. So on your favorite podcast platform, give us a review, um, you know, give us the five stars, say a couple nice things about us. Um, If you got bad things to say about us, uh, maybe don't. And uh, if by the off chance you're listening to this a mile high in the sky, reach out to us because we uh, we got word that there's possibly a few pilot listeners. Oh, listening yeah. we to got this. pilots. Yeah, we got pilots. Oh, dude. man, we got pilots for the plane book. Ooh. That's cool. That must be like a trip listening to this while flying a plane. Yeah, like, we're like, sorry. Please shoot us a message if you literally are, because that's just that just blows my mind. That's super cool. But anyway, again, thank you guys for listening. We're going to close it out now. I'm Shane Bazell. And I'm Gavin Russell. And until next time, um, make sure to melt your murder weapon. Yeah, like just use an icicle, dude. It'll melt, dude. In a video game. Yeah. Bye. Okay, that's our show. Please make sure to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts and be sure to follow us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram, all at Rapture Podcast. I Survived the Rapture is part of the IndieSource Podcast Network. For more great shows and to join the conversation, please visit IndieSource.com and check out the IndieSource Discord. We'll see you there, and thanks for listening. He can help you and lead you astray.